0: Welcome to Dr. M's Women and Children First podcast. I'm your host, Dr. M, and this is podcast number 46. This week, I have the pleasure of speaking with Jake Hastings. Who is Jake Hastings? Well, first of all, Jake is a guy I just met a couple months ago at the Man Uncivilized initiation, which was my second round through this excellent experience. But Jake, also being his second time, is a guy that has a diverse background and A super interesting human to speak with, be around, you know, conspire with in so many different ways. He's a firefighter, he worked in EMS services for quite a while, and also worked in incident management. His adventures and jobs have carried him to 27 countries around the world. He served in the US Air Force as a medic and a mental health technician, where he worked in clinics and hospitals with various military branches around the world. After leaving the military, Jake worked as a ski patroller in Mount Hood, Oregon, and as a search and rescue park ranger for the Columbia River Gorge National Scenic Area. He eventually joined Clackamas Fire District No. 1 near Portland, Oregon, and served six years as a firefighter and engineer. Jake then joined the Oregon State Fire Marshals Incident Management Team as a public information officer and traveled the Pacific Northwest helping to manage large incident wildfires. Jake has worked in some large-scale disaster incidents, such as the Joplin, Missouri Tornado of 2011 and Riverside Fire, the Riverside Fire in Clackamas County, Oregon in 2020. Jake now teaches emergency medicine in Montana and also hosts wellness retreats part-time. He is passionate, to say the least, about continuing to help others and advocate for mental health care amongst the first responder community. For me, though, Jake is a man on a mission to learn as much as he can in this lifetime about what it is to be a real gentleman, how to live in this world, despite being in the first responder world where we see a lot of things that are very hard on our mind and then take a toll on the body because the body does keep the score of the mind. And Jake and I get deep into the weeds this time of what it's like to be in the first responder world, whether you are a firefighter, a policeman, a military uh, branch service worker, or like me, a physician on the front lines seeing children sick, or those folks that dealt with COVID, either in the nursing field or any field that puts you in a first responder role, EMS services. And for this episode, we're going to look at what it's like to be in this world. How do you deal with the mental struggles of being in a work environment that has one, high stress, two, visuals that are hard to leave the mind when you see a child, a adult in a fire, a a person shot. I mean, there's so many places that we are exposed to unsightly, visuals and experiences that we then have to learn to process. And I can tell you from my own experiences, I was not trained well how to deal with death. You know, we had some minor training in medical school, but we didn't really get the education needed to deal with death appropriately. And so we get into what is it like to try to navigate the world of death and experiential negativity in a way that is functional and some of it not functional, right? And What are our outlets? Some of them good, some of them really not good. And we dive all over the swimming pool of this discussion. And for me, this is important because for those folks out there who have a relative who's a first responder in any field, this may help you understand some of the things that we do as coping mechanisms or we have as coping mechanisms that seem a little strange to the outside world but to us make sense and how the man uncivilized movement and these initiation events that Jake and I have done twice now have helped us tremendously learn to deal effectively with that which is difficult inside our bodies and then help us show up better for those around us in a way so that we are less encumbered by that which our bodies are exposed to, and our minds are exposed to. So there's sort of the backdrop of where we're going, and we do get all over the map. But let me tell you, Jake is an amazing human, and I'm so thrilled to have him on the show to talk about the collective experiences of the first responders and people like Jake and myself in this world. So with that, let me introduce you to Jake Hastings. Well, hello, Jake Hastings from Montana. I know you're out there today, and I'm really excited to have you on the show. So welcome.
1: Thanks, Chris. Appreciate it. It's great to be here.
0: Yeah, it is nice to have you. And so we are fresh off our collective second tour of the Man Uncivilized initiation, where you and I at different times went through at the first round, and now we're going through we went through it the second round and both came away with some profound Differences in our lives, and we're going to get to some of that in a little bit. But before we go there, tell me a little bit about your backstory and and what, what brought you to this Man Uncivilized movement and and how you are today. Okay.
1: Yeah. Um, Man Uncivilized was fantastic, and I was extremely happy to meet you there because you were one of the most impactful people that I did meet while I was there. Um, my background that kind of took me to that spot is... Is varied. It's kind of all over the place. So we'll just kind of start from the beginning. Uh, a little bit about me is I'm a former firefighter. I was a firefighter for eight years um, outside of Portland, Oregon. Before that, I worked as a ski patroller. I was a park ranger doing search and rescue as a park ranger. Um, I was a military medic for six years. And I also worked as a mental health technician in an inpatient psychiatric unit in Launchville, Germany. So kind of all over the place as far as career-wise goes. Um, Ever since I've been an adult I've been in some kind of uniform up until recently I've been doing uniform services trying to serve either my country or my local community or all of the above. So, um, with that comes a lot of PTSD and mental health issues in my own personal life and also looking back at my family's life now that I've learned more, um, I can see that my family have a lot of mental health illnesses as well. So. A, one being genetic and B, working in careers that have caused me to have some of my own struggles led me to the point to where I started really seeking alternative medicine in the mental health realm as far as um, looked into psychedelic stuff, going to retreats, opening up, actually being able to express my emotions, which have been suppressed for essentially my entire life. So that is what ultimately led me to going to Man Uncivilized for the first time. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I think, you know, it's, it's, it's a fascinating to me conversation because when you have 30 guys in a room now twice for me and twice for you, everybody comes from a different walk of life. The common theme there being that all of us, for some reason have suppressed emotions that come out sideways with whatever it is in our primary relationships, whether it's work related, whether it's with our spouse, whether it's with our kids, things that we haven't dealt with that, you know, we're told not to worry about. I know, And this is sort of one of the levers I want to pull on big time today for the folks that are in the first responder world like you and me, either as a pediatrician with kids who are getting sick or as a firefighter watching people trapped in homes or whatever part of your life you dealt with in uniform services, there is this take away that the Marlboro man is who we're supposed to be tough and strong and do the job. And for me, it was always moving on to the next patient, even though I hadn't really reconciled with what I'd just seen. Residency, med school, seven years, nothing in the training, nothing to say, hey, buddy, slow down, deal with this. And so that was one of the things that I noticed as a commonality, as a thread throughout this experience. And I know for the folks listening, if you are... You know in this first responder world you could probably understand this or married to somebody who's in that world you can understand this reality so let's go back to your first trip through man uncivilized if you want and let's sort of talk about what what that was like for you in the sense of you're just starting to sort of unlock this chest of emotions and things that were suppressed and unknown
1: yeah definitely and um I love that doing this podcast interview now, I can just be open and free with all of this for years. I wasn't able to express any of this. I came from the land of Marlboro, man. I literally grew up as a ranch kid, cowboy kid in Texas with an extremely uh, demanding dad. Um, I also have a special needs older brother. He's fairly severely autistic. So there was a lot of dynamics growing up with that. Um, fast forward, working all of the uniformed services jobs, there was no way that you could talk about emotions. It was all suppression. Just like you said, you know, the seven years that you were going through residency and med school and all that kind of stuff, it is constantly just move on, move on. And an issue that I see in the mental health world and the first responder world in general is that most mental health providers, they mean, well, they really do want to help. They really want to help first responders and veterans. Um, the issues that I see with that is that there's a lot of goodwill and ideas, but from people who don't know what it's like to actually do the jobs. There are very few mental health providers that came from the world of first response or the med field or working with trauma day in and day out that have moved on to become mental health professionals. So that shortage creates an issue. And so going back to when I first started realizing that essentially I was just screwing up my entire life. I mean, all of the suppressed emotions, the PTSD, I was a great firefighter in that I could go kick down a door, go into a burning building, pull people out, high five, the crew, you know, and then go deal with a fatal car wreck right after, or whatever the situation was. I always joked that we had the strangest job in the world because it was the only job where you could be cooking bacon and eggs for breakfast go to a decapitation call and then come back and then just pick up right where you were cooking your breakfast and then eat it. Like nothing happened. Um, so that, that really led to a severe issue in suppressing my emotions and suppressing any feelings that I had. And we use a terminology in, in, a, in a critical incident of stress management, that it's just the weeds growing. The weeds are just festering and growing in your mind and in your soul And eventually you end up feeling like you lose your soul. At least I did. I got to a point to where dead bodies did not affect me whatsoever. And in fact, they were an inconvenience because I didn't like having to stay on scene waiting for the police to come so they could fill out the report. You know, we had to hold the scene so it was secure. We couldn't just leave a dead body. But it would become more of an annoyance. So when I hit that point, the the realization point that I had was... Um, I was a firefighter outside of Portland and Portland has ha- had its severe issues. It It is a city that is having some extreme issues right now. Um, it is not in a good spot. Well, when I was there during 2020, 2021, the riots were ha- happening. It was just becoming unsafe. The crime rates skyrocketed, murder skyrocketed by eight hundred percent. So the city in itself was draining my mental health and, the mask laws, Oregon was extremely strict. The mask laws at the time, um, you could get a ticket for going outside or trying to hike. It was just a miserable place to live. So already those those weeds in my brain that were unhealthy were festering more and more. And at the time, I had lived in a cabin by myself up in the, uh, up in the mountains, you know, Mount Hood. I had a really beautiful cabin, but when COVID hit, it became just an isolation chamber where I was just by myself, no social connections. Um, you know, I had dated a few gals before, but they kind of drifted off during during COVID because no one was really doing anything socializing. So my life consisted of me being absolutely isolated or going to work where they kept us isolated at work at the same time where we had to stay away from the rest of the crew because they didn't want people to get exposed. They were real hard on the masks, real hard on the vaccines all of this kind of stuff while we were still trying to take care of people and our patients. So all of this came to a head when, um, I just realized like I was just sick and tired of being sick and tired. And I found myself doing really destructive behavior type things where, you know, I just, I just didn't care. I stopped caring about my work. Um, you know, I would perform well on calls, but all the other duties that I had, you know, uh, I was a fire fire engineer at the time. So I drove the fire engine, I just didn't really care about all the admin stuff that we were supposed to do or charting. I got lazy, um, started gaining weight really bad. You know, I was, I was gaining weight at a pretty rapid pace. And I realized that I have a propensity to kind of self-medicate with food and with unhealthy behaviors. It's a defense mechanism, um, kind of always have done that. So coming to that head and realizing, like, I got to do something. I got to change something. I've ruined multiple relationships. Um, I would date a gal for about six months and then somehow, you know, gaslight her, manipulate her or something like that. And essentially, it was just me, protective mechanisms. So I ruined multiple relationships with some really wonderful women. Um, You know, a lot of them, I would tend, tend to attract women with their own issues as well you know, kind of getting into that caretaker mode, all that stuff that comes along with that. But I was more or less at the end of the, my, my rope. I've never been suicidal, but I have a tendency to, to want to disappear where I will just pack a bag and leave and just vanish. I, um, I've traveled 26 countries. I love traveling. I'm very comfortable in different cultures and situations. And I lived in a lot of third world countries where I just love it because it's kind of the wild west without a lot of laws. And that was my goal. I was just going to leave again. But I decided that I was unhealthy. And then I felt like I lost my soul and I needed to go get help. And it was at that time I had started trying to get back into shape. And so I was just running this trail by my cabin by myself. You know, there was no one out there who would run it. And I would start listening to audiobooks. And I ended up through, a, I think it was an Instagram ad, found Man Uncivilized and got the book and started listening to it. And then I was fascinated by it. And then I looked up Traver and saw that he was having a, um, a gathering in Colorado. And so I said, well, you know, this is the time to throw a Hail Mary and we're gonna, we're gonna try, we're gonna do something. Cause I have to do something. And at the time I thought it was pretty expensive, but I said, you know what? I'm not going to invest myself in this unless I spend the money to do it. Because if I spend the money to do it and I just go and I don't really research anything. And I just say, you're here, you know, talking to myself, you're here, you're here to do the work um, and just accept anything as it comes along. So I did. So off I went to Colorado and it scared me to death. The first day sitting there on the couch, I remember having a pillow, kind of holding a pillow as a comfort mechanism and dealing with these guys talking about emotions and deep somatic breathing and stress responses and just very supportive guys, which I'd never been really used to, not in an emotional way, been used to kind of having that, Hey, I got your back because we're firefighters or we're military, but not in a, Hey, it's okay to cry or it's okay to be stressed out or that, you know, you're just not doing well in life. This was the first exposure that I ever had to that. And that's what kicked off my journey with man Uncivilized.
0: Yeah. Boy, I could pull on 30 levers there. <laughs> Let let me just touch on a couple things, right? So for the listeners, what you're hearing is a story from an honorable gentleman who went into the world with all the best ideas, be a first responder, help others, heal others. And through the struggles that all of us go through, we start to find ways to, the words were stated, self-medicate, you know, through food, lone wolf it we're good at being the man who can run away and go climb a mountain, visit countries, Um, you know, and, and unfortunately, some of that stuff lends itself to being lonely, right. And that loneliness of being the lone wolf. I am the same. When I, when stuff doesn't go well for me, I disappear. I go into the mountains with my headphones on and I climb mountaintops. So I, I, I feel that entirely in my bones when you say that, but I also want to pull on another level, the annoyance of death, People listening to this may think that is so crass. It is not. I want everybody here when he says the annoyance of death, when, when, when Jake is sitting here saying that, that is an unbelievably distant point in our existence that we're able to be annoyed by death because it's an inconvenience, because our lives are so upside down, seeing the same thing over and over again. And we can't even hold our normal selves there. For me in medicine, it's the jokes. You know, the doctors who laugh about Cases, right? We do this. It's an uncomfortable situation, but we almost do it as a pop off valve for the stress that we're all going through because none of us know how to deal with this, right? And so I totally feel you in there. And thank you for being honest and vulnerable because every first responder out there has some form of this, whether it's that piece, the laughter, the eating the eggs right afterwards and not processing, we're all struggling. And so I want everybody to hear that if you're married to somebody who's a first responder, it doesn't matter their gender you're married to a first responder recognize that these are coping mechanisms. They're not being jerks and helping to understand that that's part of what's now happening, that we need to now help them unwind and get rid of because we don't need to frankly be doing that. It's not healthy. Right. And, and and the last level I want to put on, I think is super interesting. There's a, there's a TV show called seal team. And I remember in seal team when the, the, the major guy says, hey, it's a three-foot world. Everything that happens in my three-foot world, I worry about. I don't worry about anything else. That also happens in this space of, you know what? It's this compartmentalized time and space. We're not worrying about anything else. That, that child who just died, that was 10 feet ago. So it's gone, but it's never gone. So I just want to pull on those levers because these were big key moments you just stated I think everybody sort of needs to clue in on because that's the point at which we're all stating to ourselves, this is too much for me. I'm struggling. So here come my coping mechanism. We may have met, we may have developed these mechanisms at age two, five, seven, twelve. 12. It doesn't matter. It works. It shuts off emotion. It, it, it blunts pain and allows us to continue the process of going into that fire, going into that pediatric office with a kid who's super sick. It is that mechanism that allows us to be good at what we do. But unfortunately, it also leaves us struggling to be empathetic emotionally grounded and the man we want to be so now that we've sort of talked about that what in that first one what parts of you cracked open if you're willing to go there and I'll sort of touch on mine too like I I came in there completely unknowing and things did crack for me
1: yeah very much so and and you brought up a lot of good points just then as well I'd like to touch on the humor too so help me to remember to circle back to that yeah. Because the humor is a big part of, of our coping mechanisms. But the the things that cracked open for me when I was at the first Man Uncivilized, uh, we were at a, a lodge in Jefferson, Colorado, and just a beautiful scenery, you know, just a lot of deer and things. And it was just kind of serene. But the biggest one for me was because this was right on the tail end of COVID, and Some of the other states did not get drug on as long as Oregon did. Oregon was one of those persistent ones. Uh, Whatever the listeners' political views are, uh, this is beside that. I can just tell from from experiencing firsthand, they locked the state down and they kept it locked down for a very long time, and they being the governor of Oregon at, at that time. And it was intense. It was unhealthy. It was unhealthy for everybody involved, and now we get to see the fallout of policies for oregon right right. so it was nice to leave there and be able to go to a place to where they didn't hound us about masks there wasn't politics involved it was just a bunch of guys that all were there at the same time struggling with something in their life and were there to support each other and it was the first time in years that i had seen a non-divided group of people because even in my fire department it got extremely divided where You know, it was, people were fighting about this stuff and yelling at each other around the table and and we're all working together. I mean, when you're working a 24 hour shift every other day, you, you spend more time with that crew than you do with your own family members and seeing the division that was happening over masks and vaccines and everything else. um, It really, it really put a major mental health component on top of the stuff that firefighters are already dealing with. So being able to go to Man Uncivilized and not having that divisiveness showed me that it is okay and that there really are guys out there that care about other guys and their well-being and their mental health. So immediately I started feeling a presence that I could just let down my guard a little bit, that, that I felt unsafe, not unsafe as in these guys are going to hurt me. I just felt unsafe in my own body and my own presence that I wasn't able to open up like I needed to because I had no connection to my emotions whatsoever. My emotions are angry or happy. And happy even felt like a mask occasionally. I don't think it was true happiness. It was just a mask, uh, an emotion that I could put out there. Angry was easy because I basically lived in an angry state constantly. And I've never considered myself an angry person, but the hurt and that was living inside me Manifested itself as anger, that I was just angry at everything. But fast forwarding going through the Man Uncivilized stuff, I eventually found out a lot of it is sadness, which I thought was anger. And I didn't know how to deal with any of it at all whatsoever. But the most impactful first thing that happened for me with uh, Man Uncivilized is we did an exercise where we were just walking around looking into other guys' eyes. And we were, we were in a circle meandering around you and I did it at the second one the first time I did it um, I could not look anybody in the eyes because in my world looking somebody in the eyes meant it was aggression they were going to try to fight me or um, hit me or be dangerous that's the hyper vigilant world that I lived in and so looking into guys eyes like that um, it just broke me it was weird I was I was holding on and I was like okay I feel weird about this I can't look into people's eyes Um, And then there was another gentleman that was at the Man Uncivilized, and he's one of the leadership now there. But he's one of those hardcore guys, too. And I was expecting to get there and see a bunch of, as I called woo-woo, sissy guys talking about feelings and all that kind of stuff. And then I meet Dave and then um, felt safe around Dave. You know, he's a former cop. He was a firefighter. He was a military guy Um, and just kind of a brick house of a dude you know, tattoos all over the place. And he was there working through it all with me. And he showed me that it was okay to be vulnerable and to just let down my guard. And that he was there to support me. And I really connected with him because that was the first time anybody like me in my mind was able to show me the way that this is okay. And I ended up breaking down and I was just crying. And then these guys surrounded me and they did this whole thing where they held me and they lifted me up in the air and all felt very strange to me at the time, very woo, but it's exactly what I needed because I had never had that kind of support. And through the rest of the week, I felt myself opening up more and more and more, and I ended up discovering that I had the ability in me to also open up to other people and support them as well. A lot of it's defense mechanism. I now know that because... The savior part of me or the hero part of me wants to be there for other people. And it's a good way to deflect my own feelings by being there for others. And then you and I experienced a lot of this with some of the exercises that we had together in the second one that we both wanted to be heroes for each other. Right. And understanding that that's a a defense mechanism in and of itself was a really deep realization for me that I can still help people but I can't ignore what's happening with me. And now um, going back to the humor part of it that you were talking about, I do improv comedy and I have my own comedy show and I do improv classes. And I actually talk a lot about the dark humor and using comedy in the first response world in the medical world with medical personnel as a way to pull out those weeds that are growing in your brain, you know, being able to talk about this stuff in a safe manner in in that it's very healthy. It's very therapeutic and it's not for the general civilians to hear. And I'm sure there's a lot of people that are not medical personnel or not first responders listening to your podcast. And they have to realize that sometimes it's not for them. The, The dark humor is for the medical personnel that are dealing with it because I barely knew you when we met at the second one, but you and I had a common ground in that we could talk about this stuff. And if you made a morbid joke about a dead person, I would get it. I wouldn't think, oh, this guy's a morbid serial killer. That's just your way of of exercising therapy and getting it out of your mind because we see some traumatic, horrendous stuff. Like right. seeing a child die in a horrendous way, in any way, a child dying in any way, affects everybody in the medical profession and the only way that some people know how to get it out is is to joke about it because you can't just stop your shift if you have a kid die and you're on a 12 hour 16 hour however long you work a 24 hour shift you can't just stop right there and go to a mental health professional and tell them about it because you probably have six other kids waiting to be seen at the time right and so it was the same with me is there was no way to just (laughs) leave being on shift and to go seek help. And that's the problem with the the mental health world right now is that is the leading thought process. And a lot of mental health therapists that work with first responders in that, like, if you see something traumatic, you should be off shift. You should go talk to somebody. You should be around your family. Well, that's not the case because they don't understand how the job actually works there. You're not afforded the chance to just leave. And it's even worse now because the whole medical world is shorthanded, they're all burned out, and so you just keep rolling through to the next one, to the next one, to the next one, to the point to where you have compounded post-traumatic stress disorder, and it starts to physiologically affect you. And it comes out as anger, sleep apnea, weight gain, alcoholism, drug use, name it. There are so many things um, for people who originally came into these career fields to help other people people with big hearts. And I think a lot of us end up feeling that we lose our hearts or we lose our souls, but we just have to re-find it in a new way because I left the fire service. I got to the point I was burned out that I was like, I'm going to hurt somebody and I'm not going to do my job correctly. So I left. Now I'm doing things in a little bit different way, but encouraging people to Get that help. Get a counselor and find the right one. It took me years to find the right counselor. I went through five different counselors, and there was one I was sitting across from some mental health grad, probably you know two years into doing mental health work, and I'm sitting there basically verbally vomiting all over this person and telling them about the horrendous stuff I've seen. I was talking about a decapitation, you know, or had brain matter all over me at one point. And he stopped me and he's like, I I don't think I'm the right guy for you. He's like, I I can barely handle hearing this stuff. And so to me, I was like, Well, A, um, that's fantastic that he was able to realize that and tell me that. I appreciated that he was honest with me. But then I realized how many mental health providers out there that cannot handle it. So I kept seeking, seeking. Then I found a counselor. He's a 30-year special forces chaplain in the army. The guy's been there done it understands what i'm going through and so he's really helped me be able to open up and uh, talk about this stuff
0: yeah man I, i'm thinking about Trevor's post today i don't know if you read that but you know traver bowman leads man and civilized was posting today about some work he had recently done and how he felt this incredible power and I, I use power very carefully here in the sense of the ability with all the men standing behind him like us who've been through the program with him Having this ability to feel that presence of all of us while he held space for whatever he's working through. And my immediate thought as I was driving my car after I had read that was man, I cannot wait until I'm capable of being able to have that much space holding ability and empathy for anybody, whatever capacity they're going through in these circumstances. Like to your point, you felt held, supported, and contact during that first event where you had the that 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 crying experience around that aggression, fear, eye contact you know, exercise. And for me, Mine happened in different ways. My first time I broke down based on another gentleman who had been in narcotics and seen death like crazy. And I was like, this has nothing to do with me. But boy, it started bringing up all those emotions in me about children I saw die, experiences I went through. I had no idea why it was coming up. But boy, it was just a fusing up, like you were saying. It's like, I have no idea why it's happening, but it's coming. And then to be able to allow it to come and exist in a place where guys are guys, You know, like to your point, Dave Boyd, amazing dude, you know, full on, you know, monstrous, you know, gentleman of heart, soul, body, everything. He's just there and you know it. And he's able to hold space and be present and vulnerable. Man, what a light that is for us to see. And Traver, of course, and and the leaders. So uh, again, I want everybody to hear how powerful it is. You can read all the self-help books you want. You're rarely going to touch the space of dealing with these emotions that Jake and I are speaking to. And I think about this, and again, in my field of medicine, why so many doctors commit suicide, right? It's because they look great on the outside. They've got money. They've got the car, the house, the ability. But deep inside, they're not okay, right? And, and struggling, walking this earth, lone wolfing it, self-medicating, whatever the heck we're doing to deal with that which society says, hey, you're great. You're a firefighter. You're awesome. You're in the military. You're a doctor. You're a lawyer. You are society's way. Amen, brother. Nobody's really looking inside like, what's really going on? And frankly, I think we should flip this narrative around and be more proactive of asking all of our first responders, hey, how are you today? And let's talk about really how are you today. And I want to look you in the eyes and say, hey, I, Chris, am here for you, Jake through whatever you're going through. And then so that we can continue these jobs. Because honestly, to your point, if we always do this until burnout, quit, move on, burnout, quit, move on, we're not serving society. And to your other point, this lack of people coming up, you know, medicine's in big trouble. We don't have enough docs coming in. And if we don't get more physicians into the, into the service of patient care, especially in primary care, we're in really big trouble. And so we've got to figure this narrative out around the Marlboro Man archetype is no longer serving us. So how do we get to the world that Travers building, where you know, hey, you have this ability to be strong yet soft, vulnerable yet powerful. I mean, that's to the point that I think you and I took away clearly from from this these experiences. And and again, I want to applaud your statements of your vulnerability. Cause man, it's weird to say somebody, 12 guys held me up in the air, right? That, that, you know, the average person's like, Hey, eh, that ain't normal. But let me tell you folks, that should be normal. You know, and I think in history, that probably was really normal. And we've just culturally taken all of this away somewhere along the way that it's not okay for men to be men with men. Right, like, oh, I can't touch you. If I touch you, that means I'm either, uh, you know, interested in the same gender, which is okay if you are. But it, you know, there's there's this machismo, you know, that 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 no, we shouldn't be dealing with that anymore. It's okay to touch. It's okay to be in contact. And frankly, it's okay to love your brother to the point of supporting them to feel good about themselves. And I think that's what you're sure. stating clearly, Jake. And I love the way you're saying it. So yeah, and and I love that you brought up
1: the intimacy with another man part of it because for me where i grew up and and how things were perceived any type of intimacy always meant attraction to and yeah it's interesting because right now i'm i'm dating a woman who is native hawaiian and she speaks hawaiian so english is her second language and it's not hawaiian i can't remember what the language is called but um that we've had interesting runarounds with the way that English words are used and for a long time we had a very like big miscommunication because she would tell me that she was attracted to somebody but she was talking about like their energy or she thought people were interesting but the way she said it it sounded like she was interested romantically in them and we got a big laugh out of it in that it's just it's the same word but just different types of meanings depends on if you're a native speaker or if you're just trying to learn it Um, with that being said, that goes back to intimacy as well in that when you and I were there at the second one, they had us literally standing in front of each other and holding hands and getting connected. And to me, even now, even with the work that I'm doing, that is still very uncomfortable for me. And a few of the other guys even brought it up as we talked about things, how we've never had that closeness or even touched other guys whatsoever and it's it just like a weird awkward feeling because it's perceived that in the macho culture that would mean that you are attracted to romantically or sexually someone of the same sex and like you said that's perfectly fine if that's the case but that's not what that means that's not the end-all be-all and that guys can hug each other or guy you know like you can just put your hand on somebody's shoulder to support them or you can, as a group, lift somebody up in a therapeutic setting and it, it doesn't mean anything except for guys supporting guys. And women yeah. have always been pretty good with that because women are, in my in my opinion, in my experience, are, are a lot more open to touching each other, hugging, being the more, as I call them, the touchy-feely creatures. Whereas all of a sudden, why do men not need that type of stuff either? We, we still have the whole hierarchy of needs and that there's the need for human touch with human development. And I think just the closeness and the intimacy, especially if you don't have a father in your life who did that kind of stuff with you, which I would venture to guess, there is some absurd high statistic of people that are in our type of career fields that don't have really good connections, intimate connections with their fathers or any male role models in general. I also think that there's a high probability that uh, most of us fit that hero hero archetype of the child in the human development, um, and so it's an interesting it's an interesting concept to look at that and realize that there there's a lot of sameness in us because we went into these career fields for a reason. We want to help. We want to serve. Uh, we need to do something with meaning. And to the point, it's our own detriment. We get to the point, and you talked about suicide. I mean, nobody talks about doctor suicide. That is one of those statistics that no one really ever brings up because a lot of the nation, a lot of the world has this idea that, yeah, doctors haven't made, just like you said, doctors are sitting on top of the world. They got all this money, blah, blah, blah. Same with firefighters. It was the dream career. And I worked at one of those dream fire departments where people would leave and commute from different parts of the United States just to work there. I mean, they would fly from Vegas and stuff just to work in my fire department. But it doesn't matter that it's not a dream job if it steals your soul and there's no support. And I don't think it's anybody's fault. I don't like assigning fault and I don't like playing the victim whatsoever because I think there's way too much victim mentality in the world. Um, Lots of people had really crummy pasts, crummy childhoods crummy marriages, all of the above. Um, it's how you deal with it now as an adult, how how you're coping with it. And coming from somebody who dealt poorly with it for years and absolutely destroyed a lot of relationships and, and lives, frankly, I mean, you know, like being vulnerable, I, I cheated on a lot of my girlfriends because it was just, a, who knows? It was an unhealthy co- coping mechanism. I was a mentally unhealthy person. And I'm not fully there yet. I feel like a lot of people go on po- podcasts and a lot of people are listening and they think, oh, you know, it, they look for the, this is where they started and this is where they are. And now they're healed and they're living their life and they're successful, etc. cetera. Um, I'm still in that process. I'm still a baby in the process of trying to figure all of this stuff out myself. But what I've realized is seeking purpose in my life, I was going around and around around what my purpose was, and I've come to the conclusion that I think my purpose now is to encourage other people who are scared to get mental health help to go get it, to realize this is hurting you, and it's hurting people around you, and a lot of it's not fair, but even if life is unfair, don't assume a victim mentality, because then you'll just get in the death spiral where that's where the alcoholism comes in. And then that's where the the DUIs come in. And then before you know it, you've lost your license, you're in rehab, or you've been to jail, or you've beat your spouse or your children. And the the abuse and the neglect and the suicidal ideations that run rampant in the medical community is very underreported. And I think that the statistics do everybody injustice, because even with the critical incident stress management. Classes that I've been to, they combine all of the suicidal uh, statistics together. So they're combining the statistics of a 98 year old who is just tired of living in pain and swallows a bunch of his pain pills. They compare, they put that in the same realm as a 22 year old police officer who kills himself. And I think a big problem with mental health statistics is that we combine them, we don't break them out and talk about the differences between a 22-year-old person and a 98-year-old person. Yes, the, the suicide statistics in both of them are high, but they shouldn't be combined because if we combine them, we can't figure out the individual issues that are going on. Just like a doctor who kills himself may be very similar to a firefighter who commits suicide, but they're not exactly the same. It's not the same career. There's similarities, but it's not the same. And so, I think the only way to really fix the suicidal issue, the suicide issue, is being able to break it apart and have people who have done these jobs really talk about it. People like you and I, who are really trying to do the work, we're seeking answers, we're looking for help, and being able to tell other people and have a platform for it saying, hey, it is okay. You need to go seek help. And so, for me, uh, right now, I work for a nonprofit. In Montana, and we travel all over the state and we teach emergency medicine to students and to physicians, and we use high fidelity mannequins for simulations. But now, after I'm done with the class during the debriefing, I always try to put in a part where I talk about my experiences, and especially for the new students, I tell them, Look, you're coming in the hills of COVID. You're going to be working with a lot of burned out medical providers, and a lot of your preceptors are going to be burned out, and they're not going to be giving it their all. And I tell him, I said, this career can be very, very long. It can also beat you up and spit you out. And and that's just how it is. I say, if you develop good habits now, you get mental health help now, you take your time off as you need to, you talk to each other, you talk about these issues, you're going to have a better career and you're going to be able to help more people. Cause they don't understand, you know, as new students, you have no understanding. You know, when I was going to fire academy, I was like, yeah, this is cool. You know, I felt like I got selected for a pro sports team and everything was going to be grand. And then fast forward six years, I literally step over bodies, just checking my watch, wondering what time lunch was, you right. know, and, and that happens with everybody. The nursing career field is really getting hammered right now. Um, they're yeah. just struggling to find me. EMTs and paramedics. It is such a problem in Montana at this moment that they are worried that they're going to have to shut down uh, EMS services, ambulances, and things. And there will be major parts of the state uncovered. Same with nursing facilities. Talk about the forgotten world of COVID. The burnout that happened in the nursing facilities and the long-term elderly care facilities, they're literally closing them at a drastic rate right now across the United States. Where's all of our old people going to go? And now the baby boomer generation is all there. They're all getting older. They all need help. But we're facing a perfect storm right now where we're losing all of our medical providers and the entire nation is essentially needing more medical care.
0: Yep. Big, big mess coming. I know, I you know, we could pull on that thread all day long. It's just yeah. a, such a such a mess post-COVID. I, I could go on and on and on about what they did to the school systems. With it. Yeah, it's just, a, it's just a mess. But we're going to hold that for another day. I want to go back to intimacy. Now, you said very clearly, you know, when you and I were there and we were doing that hand-holding experience, at first, awkward, really. And this is our second run. And this is our second run at this too, right? Not the first run, right? Second run, we're coming through this and you and I are holding hands. We're doing our thing, right? And how long did it take for you to start feeling comfortable or did you? It,
1: I never fully felt comfortable, but what I did realize, and I brought this up to you during the exercise, was that I felt a familiar energy. And I don't even think I knew what you did for a living at this point. Um, right. Because we did. Yeah, I didn't, but I could feel a familiar energy. And I had talked about before in uh, another podcast that I did about my hands that I've always had this weird kind of self-conscious thing about my hands because the amount of people that have died in my hands. And it's a weird realization when you start, you know, sometimes I just look at my hands and I'm like, wow, like these hands have guided probably a couple hundred people out of this, out of this world. And it's saved. I've saved a lot too, but as you well know, when someone's ticket is punched and it's their time to go, there's sometimes there's literally nothing you could do about it. And so, and
0: that's what, that's what we remember.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And that's what we remember. And then, um, so when I was touching your hands, which awkward already touching another guy's hands, but then I was like, there is something with this guy. There's some kind of energy and I've been working on opening up with energy. I work with horses. they are big energy machines where, you know, you practice grounding and all that kind of stuff. Well, I could just feel a very familiar feeling with you. And so it let down my guard real quick and I didn't feel as awkward and we weren't able to talk at that time, but I was like, okay, something's, I get a feeling this guy does something in the medical world. He's probably seen a lot of death because I felt the same thing in your hands that your hands have probably ushered many lives out of this world as well. Yeah. So it was just a weird, kind of a weird thing, weird, familiar energy that essentially did help me relax and help yep. us connect.
0: Totally. Totally, and I remember you coming up to me afterwards and say, "Are you in the medical field?" And I said, "Yeah, I'm a pediatrician." He goes, I knew it, and and you know, so I think there's a lot to be said about that. That's another two-hour podcast to the understanding of the quantum physics of why that energy transfer actually her- occurs. But not, we're not going to pull on that thread either. But I want to <laughs> continue on this intimacy thread because you know Connor Beaton just had Franz DeWall on his podcast. He's a primatologist at Emory University, where I went to med school. And he worked at the Yerkes uh, lab, and he basically was studying the behavior of primates. Um, And he's watched them for, I think, three or four decades now. And the amazing thing about the understanding of watching primates, again, our closest other species on the planet, is that they have male intimacy. And again, to your point, and it's very important for people to hear this, this is not sexual intimacy, right? We always take intimacy and always put it in the sexual bucket. It's not. There is an intimacy sex bucket and then there's an intimacy connection in life energy together. And you and I went down that pathway. It was very clear. We weren't heading down the sex bucket, right? And, and so then once we started to understand that, once I started to feel, okay, Jake's here with me in this moment, studying how to be energetically connected in a way that's beneficial to both of us. Boy, that mental part, because I'm always in my damn head, which is something I'm working on all the time to try and get more in my heart and energetically grounded. I was like, okay, this is actually pretty freaking cool. And then you and I started working on how the handhold was safe from somebody crushing your hand. And and that was hilarious because it looked right when you did it. And then we flipped our hands and I couldn't get it right. I was like, what the hell's going on here? And then we finally took a picture of it, which I think I'm going to share in the newsletter, the way the hands were held. Because again, that brought in another piece. Because then when we're doing this deep work with guys in struggle, and I struggled big time this second experience, I broke down heavier than I've ever, I think my nut cracked wide open this time. But during those processes, when you're holding another person's hand, you're trying to prevent that person from hurting you, which they don't want to do and won't. But if you squeeze somebody's hand hard enough, you could crush it. And Some of these guys that we're with are, you know, are strong enough to break my hands in half. So I think that was sort of cool in that process was also learning not only the intimacy side of it, but also how do we energetically get together, but also hold our hands appropriately. And this is what I think we need to be teaching young men. We need to be teaching men in our fields and frankly, men in general. And I I think to your point, that was huge. And I didn't even have that on my list of things to talk about today, but I think that's actually probably the most important thing we're going to get out of this conversation is this intimacy peace is so so freaking important for contact and contact is what leads to connection as dewey says connection leads to relationship and relationship then leads to that true intimacy and that true intimacy is what leads to happiness that then is a collective environment whether it's the family unit the group unit the 30 guys together unit the entire montana together that's how people live in harmony and so jake man that is so well said and so well done on this conversation so unless you have something else to add to that I'm going to pivot. I want to take you down another path because I think this is near and dear to my heart, so I want to go that way if you're ready. Sure. So I want to talk about your world of having a a sibling with relatively moderate to severe autism. You're younger yeah. by how many years? 1 year. Okay. So you have an older brother who is behaviorally autistic and again beautiful human, but behaviorally struggling to follow normatives and how he responded to you socially, his parents socially. And you said one thing that I really, it hit me pretty hard at the time. And you're talking about how when you're growing up, it was really hard to understand how to deal with the emotional side of a brother who was maybe hitting you or acting out against you. And he didn't even understand it. And so how can you be angry? at somebody who doesn't even understand it, and how do you reconcile your parents' actions around that? I mean, there's so much there that I think an unbelievable volume of people listening to this podcast will be able to glean information from as the parent of an autistic child, the sibling of an autistic child.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, I First of all, any of your listeners that are parents or siblings of somebody with special needs or a mental disability, Uh, I commend them because they're very strong people and there's no easy answer when it comes to it. And they don't get the recognition, especially the parents that are taking care of their, their children. Well, and, and especially the mothers and fathers who are actually caring for their adult children who are still living with them and they're never going to move out. And there's no hope for the future in a lot of their minds. Um, you know, I just thank you to everybody that is listening that is in that situation, because it is a very, very tough spot to be in. Um, yeah, right. Lots now, of compassion. You know, yeah, lots of compassion. And even in my life, this is a constant issue that is in my mind that I'm like, what, what is going to happen? Because a big part of me is out there wanting to explore the world and to, you know, to build my own life and have fun and travel and all that kind of stuff. But then there's a big portion of me that's uh, my mom is getting older. She's having medical issues. Now my brother lives with her full time. And before I know it, Aaron's probably going to have to live with me, my brother. Um, and that's okay. You know, I'm just preparing myself for that and trying to figure out how that's going to look. But growing up with my childhood was very eccentric and very odd in a way. Um, my dad decided to move us to Bolivia, South America when I was nine years old to be a missionary. So I was a missionary's kid in Bolivia for a while. Um, then my dad kind of bounced around from different jobs, could never hold on a job. They got involved with a pyramid scheme, multi-level marketing company that ended up bankrupting us. We lost the house. My dad split. Um, you know, just a lot of a lot of stuff that, that went on at very vulnerable human developmental times right around the age of like 13. So a lot of the stuff I have now as an adult comes from that time. And I'm very interested in the human development side and like the child development side of the world as well, because I've been working through it. But from the autism side of it with my older brother, There's a lot of stuff that he didn't get as well because none of us were really getting, and it was chaos. And it wasn't really anybody's fault. Like I said, I don't like to assume a victim mentality. My parents were extremely young when they had us. Their first kid was severely autistic. They didn't know what they were doing. They were trying their best, and they made it last together as long as they could. But my parents were never a good match. They should have never been together. It was just kind of a fluke you know, one, one night stand that ended up being a 16 year stand because children were involved at this point, but, um, you know, dealing with a father who was absent and left and wasn't in our life for a while. Um, you know, like I said, a lot of mental health issues run through my family in general, but living with my brother and learning to communicate with him, And because he's not able to verbally communicate a lot of the things that he's trying to communicate, he can talk but he just cannot form his thoughts properly. And so a lot of it is just nonverbal communication. And out of anybody on this planet, I can speak and we call it Aaronese. His name's Aaron. So Aaronese is his own language that he kind of speaks. He's hard to understand when he speaks to people. He has a bad stutter. He has a raised palate, so he can't form his words correctly. But just learning who he was and how he is and the things he likes and dislikes and sometimes I just sit there even now if I'm around him and I'll just watch him. You won't know I'm watching him. I'm just like, what is Aaron thinking right now? What is, what is he, what's going on with his life? Um, He has gotten a lot better. It's interesting to see the older he gets, it's almost like his brain is developing now. So for, for a long time, he was probably at a four-year-old level. Now I would say he's probably seven-year-old level, eight-year-old level, so stuff is changing. He's developing a sense of humor. Sometimes he says the most off-the-wall random thing that is in context for humor, and it's really funny, and so he's just developing a lot slower, but a lot of it has to do with the therapeutic horsework. He now uh, is taking riding lessons. He's working with someone who has therapeutic horses. He has a job where he works in the barn and he cleans up the barn and he brushes the horse and having a steady routine that he does and that he can look forward to has been the best thing for him because he's got something that he can do because he's still an adult. He's still a male in his, he's a grown man in his mind. So he wants that independence and he wants to have a job like everybody else. And he doesn't want to be different. And he, we've tried to explain to him, kind of autism but he also has some it's basically autism nos not otherwise specified he's got some brain damage from a car accident when he was an infant there's just a myriad of things going on Um, i think the vaccinations for when we moved to bolivia had a lot to do with it but once again this is anecdotal i'm not a doctor or a scientist but you know kind of aligned the time frame kind of aligned he seemed to get more severely autistic after those vaccines when we moved to bolivia because we had to have a whole myriad of them going to a third world country like that. But now where he's at, uh, he's always just been a very caring person. He also does not hold grudges. He doesn't have the ability to hold a grudge, which is absolutely incredible. And I like to say all the time that I wish I was more like Aaron when it comes to things like that. Like I wish I was as kind as him. He is the most present person. He can make a Buddhist monk blush because Aaron is so present when he's there he just whoever he's with he's just there with them he doesn't care about anything else he's not thinking ahead for the future he's not thinking about the past he's just thinking of whatever's happening right there and that's how he lives his life so there's a lot of really strong qualities that he have that he has that i find really incredible but going back to what you were talking about as real young children um through the work that i've done and through some of the somatic breathing stuff and some of the psychedelic treatment that i've done for PTSD a lot of my memories has come back from my childhood, which up until really recently, when I started doing this work, I had no recollection of my childhood, like below nine years old. Um, there's a lot of trauma that is there, a lot of stuff that happened, and it's starting to slowly come back in memories occasionally. And some of them are really tough. And one of those memories that I had was as a real young child. I mean, I'm I probably was two or three in this memory, which blows my mind that I could even remember it. But Aaron was holding a blanket over my face and he was laughing and he was holding me under a blanket. And I remember not being able to breathe and being very scared. But I also realized that he was playing. He didn't know what he was doing. He was just trying to play with his brother. And so that has deeply ingrained a claustrophobia in my life to where I'm I'm very claustrophobic. And that's weird being a firefighter because you know a big part of it is not being claustrophobic, but I was able to just mask it enough to where it didn't become a problem. But even now I can't have my face under covers. Um, I have really bad sleep apnea, but I can't wear a sleep apnea or a CPAP because it makes me wake up in a panic attack. So there's weird things that came with that and always wanting him to just be kind of <clears throat> quote unquote normal. You know, he's normal for him, but I just wanted a brother that I could play with, but I never had that. And so now as an adult realizing he's going to have to live with me soon, um, it's just a lot that I've kind of come to realization and being like, well, this is just what it is. And now I'm trying to come up with a future plan for that. And so part of that is supporting um, Down Home Ranch in Texas, where we had the Man civilized retreat this last time. Um, that was a huge project for me because I wanted to host a retreat at that ranch specifically because it is a place for adults with special needs they live there they work there they're the community and it's an incredibly magical place we tried to have Aaron move there he wasn't independent enough for their independent living program but maybe someday in the future we'll find a spot for him at that ranch Uh, he really enjoyed it there but that is a magical place and so he's a big reason that I'm shifting focus out of getting out of the uniform services. And now I'm wanting
0: to work in the mental health career field. Yeah. Good God. That's such an amazing, amazing way of stating everything. I mean, you know, first focusing on his beauty and positivity, Jake. I love that. I love that you went straight there because he is a beautiful human, right? So yeah. as all kids and adults are, right? We tend to look at people with whatever they're going through. I think of kids with opposi- oppositional defiant disorder. And I was reading a book by Gabor Mate the other day, and he talks about the oppositional child. And typically in general, the oppositional child is going to be oppositional to some force. So if there's a controlling environment, the oppose the opposition is to the controlling reality, and so I think about all this stuff in the reality and the context of each person being an individual. And you have done such an amazing job laying that framework out. And for all the people listening, again, if you have a child with special needs, whether it's a child with autism, a child with a neurobehavioral disorder of other types, or an actual, you know, type one diabetes or something. Be aware of that fundamental reality that Jake is speaking to. Like, you know, they, they have their way of being in the world, and we have our way of being in the world, but that is in connection together. And how we respond is so, so critical to everybody's experience in that process. And I think also the second piece that I want to touch on that you labeled, you know, is there that early childhood stuff can go sideways. I know I have an older brother who, frankly, wasn't too kind to me many times. And I have a lot of, you know, memories and and experiential behaviors because of what I went through as a young kid that, you know, what maybe my parents saw and didn't do anything about it, or maybe they did and, you know, just decided to do something. You know, either way, when a child is acting differently or has issues, there's usually a reason. And this is the other piece I want to state. Your claustrophobia didn't come out of nowhere. Right. And Thanks again for being vulnerable about that, because that is something that I think we all need to pay attention to in life as parents and as providers of care. I very much go into a clinic office now differently when a patient's complaining of X. I'm really trying to dive deep and see. Sometimes they can't find it. But if we can start pushing their brain back to, uh, maybe this is something happening in the past that we can work with, it helps the narrative of the person and the caregiver try and achieve a better outcome but for me i think the key in all of this is to your point you know there's an experiential side on the person with the disability and there's a strong experiential side by those that are on, on the outside i can tell you being at that ranch you know it was incredible and so rewarding and fulfilling seeing the young men who were serving us in the the mess hall you know who one of them had uh, you know down syndrome the other one had another disorder And how profoundly lifting that was for me to see young men working in an environment where they can feel empowered to be the best version of themselves, regardless of what their impediment is. And I applaud you, Jake, for one, your career path two, the fact that you are pushing narratives to get this out into the world is this, this, this sort of this ethos of walking alongside those with disability. I don't. I think it really truly is walking with folks who are disabled. You know, we're not, you know, I I hate to use certain terms related to helping them. I don't think that's the answer. I think it's walking with them as they, they're on their journey, right? I, I love that way of seeing it better. Sort of like you and I are walking on our journey now together based on our experience. I'm not helping you and you're not helping me outside of the framework of we are helping each other on our journeys together. And so I really wanted to bring that out because we have, you know, Children with autism is now roughly one in 40 in New Jersey. So this this, this struggle societally is not getting less frequent, it's getting more frequent. So as a society, we're going to need to understand tolerance better. We're going to need to understand the exposure of the siblings and their tolerance level, the parents and their bandwidth to handling um, neurobehavioral issues. And from a pediatrician side, again, if I have an asthma lecture, I might get one person to show up. But if I have a behavior lecture, that affects the parents, there's a ton of people there, right? And so behavior tends to be one of these issues that is really at the forefront. Unfortunately, in medicine, we try to medicate it all. That's not the answer, right? It does help and sometimes it's necessary. But boy, medicine is not the answer for behavioral problems. It is deeper than that. To the uncivilized point, you and I went into this man uncivilized movement with our own issues. Medicine was not the answer, nor were self-help books, frankly. I've read tons of stuff it's experience or learning in a supportive environment with guys who are willing to go to the mat for you man was that the truth, the truth. right and especially because you're bringing up you know the term is
1: neurodiversity that that is the the overall encompassing term that encompasses people that right. think different that are not quote unquote neurotypical right but in my experience i see a huge shift to where almost neurodiverse is the new normal Right. And said earlier, I I frequent. I am always in a comedy club. I work with comedians constantly. I have my own comedy show. And something that I've realized amongst comedy is that the amount of neurodiversity, or the amount of people that are on some kind of neurodiverse scale, is incredible. I would say it's probably ninety percent of most comedians. It really. Yeah. And I had not even realized it until I lived in Austin for a while. And Austin's a big comedy scene. And and I was just going to comedy shows. I was at a comedy show every single night, open mics and things like that. And that is a a world of neurodiversity that I never understood or never even heard anybody talk about. And it's just something I noticed. It's like, wow, this is incredible. But looking at the tech industry, looking at other industries right now, that neurodiversity is just, A, it's a huge spectrum. It is not like you can have somebody who maybe just is on the asperger's scale where they don't understand social cues as well but they're absolutely brilliant to the to all the way to the opposite side of the scale where you have a very severely disabled person who yes thinks differently but also needs help living and showering and just general care and there's no easy answer there's no yeah. easy explanation for any of it i i feel like nowadays there's a lot of push to just put blanket statements over everything and label people. Um, the trans community is, an, is a very interesting one that I've noticed because I have some trans friends, and this is one of those strings we could pull on forever as well. But uh, essentially, I grew up thinking that the LGBTQ community was the enemy because of how I grew up in the super Southern Baptist conservative ranching way of Texas. Uh, now working with a lot of them a lot of the people in that community and then they're a big part of my show as well i realized that a lot of people in the lgbtq community are just looking for a way to belong and they're actually neurodiverse and i have some friends they're just very open about being autistic and one of my friends he wears a dress he goes by he he is a biological male he wears a camouflage ball cap and he wears cowboy boots, but he wears a dress with it. And he identifies himself as a lesbian, but also as a masculine man. It's all over the place. There's no rhyme or reason to how he identifies himself, but he is very open about being autistic and that he just essentially felt on the outside growing up because he came from a very horrendous childhood as well. Now he lives in a in a low-income housing and he's on government stipends, etc. But... He's an advocate for the LGBTQ community because it is such a neurodiverse place that I believe he was just looking for a place to fit in and they felt on the outside already. So to them, this is a way to fit in. So I think there's a lot of hatred and a lot of animosity, especially right now with what's going on in the world and the drag shows and all this different kind of stuff to the point to where since i've traveled and i know a lot more people i've i've given up on the whole two-party you know political system i just care about people i right. just love people and i try to see past all of these divisive issues that are being pushed on us in my opinion is through media and it's very selective and it's very directed to divide americans and i'm just specifically talking about americans right now but it's a very divided community when in reality If you looked at my older brother, he wears a camouflage hat. He's always wearing cowboy boots. He even has a Trump hat because somebody gave it to him. Well, people just judge him right away a lot that he's a MAGA extremist. And he has no idea about any of that. Somebody gave him that hat and somebody gave him a gift. So he likes to wear it. And he likes to wear his camouflage because he likes to go hunting. And on the other side of the spectrum, My other friend who is wearing the dress and all this kind of stuff would would claim he's very liberal because that's the party that he typically goes with, you know, because they're very accepting of the trans community. He's really no different than my brother. Like, it's just they're just trying to fit in. And humans in general want to belong. We need tribes. We need kindness. We need love. We want to love people. And humans are just humans. We're not that different from each other. And I think neurodiversity plays a huge part in that. And I think the world could benefit from people having grace and forgiveness for each other and not being so hateful in general and just realizing like people are just people. We, you can break us down to the very simplest forms in that we essentially want the same thing. We all want to be loved, we wanna show love, we wanna have family, we wanna have people around us. And we, we just want the freedom to express ourselves however that looks. And going back to Man Uncivilized, I felt like that was a very, very safe place where no politics came up, no divisiveness. It was just, and we had people from all over the place. We even had people from other countries. It was incredible. And there was no divisiveness whatsoever in that entire week that we were there.
0: Good mic drop, Jake. You can just drop it right there. (laughs) That's awesome. I tell you, because, you know, that's sort of one of the ethoses I try and live by in our clinic is that your race, color, creed, religion, you know gender none of it matters you're either a human acting in the best potential of yourself or you're a human in a transitory state or a human who's really struggling and you need a lot of help but none of the other stuff matters and it is sort of sad that we're living in this fourth turning reality where tribalism is leading the charge in dividing us into bad versus good because ultimately that's the goal of somebody who's trying to dehumanize a group in order to eventually wipe them out we're not doing that. We're going to fight that tooth and nail this podcast as we're talking right now. This is getting that out in the world to fight that reality. And you know, pediatrics will get there eventually with uh, the terminology, you know, neuro neurobiological diversity is the is the term of the day coming. And I I think that is the right answer because frankly, biodiversity is the key to human health, right? Sort of like the biodiversity of the rainforest, the biodiversity of the human microbiome. So biodiversity of the brain makes complete sense and for those listening again Connor beaton's podcast with uh, franz de Waal gets into a lot of this stuff about primates and gender and primates and this reality that we believe one group is better than another is garbage and i think it's very good for us to start listening to more people in the scientific realm coming up with better ideological arguments for what we should be doing. So Jake, I do applaud that entirely and I agree 100% with what you're saying. So, you know, I've already kept you over what I should cuz this conversation was way too much fun. So, I've I've sucked more time out of your day than I should. So, let's let's go with this. Typically, I like to end conversations um like this with the opportunity to give one massive change occur in the world. So, you're going to get a golden ticket um, via me through the president or the Congress of the United States and that golden ticket allows you to affect one massive change, either of those institutions. What would you ask for? And while you're thinking, I'll tell you, and I tell every guest this, I would pick school food, pushing on, how bad institutional food is. You know, that was the only rub I had at the ranch was that food being provided by the federal government is unfortunately not ideal in the sense of vegetables are rare unless it was a potato. Uh, But no no knock on the ranch. The ranch was amazing. But that to me is just a marker of what we're doing to humans through the federal policies are not good. So school lunches would have to be whole food based, have to be predominantly vegetable and fruit and bean based and then good meats here and there, fish. So- that's my asking. I'll ask it until I die. What would you ask for?
1: Oh, I love that you touched on the food because that is, I could probably talk to you for hours on that because you and I are very similar on the way we think about food. Right. Um, but the one thing that I would ask for, not, I don't have a specific question per se, but it would be that we could actually push out that message that I was just talking about how, People are very, very, very similar and coming from the military world and seeing how, you know, I mean, there was a there was a major hatred for the Muslim community during the last 20 some odd years that we were at war. Um, Really, they're not a whole lot different than Christians or Catholics or whoever you pick, because there's always the same general ideas, like essentially live the good life, how you're serving and then you get to go to heaven. That's more or less the general concept. And so with the neurodiversity and religion and all this different kind of stuff, I would just ask that the message of acceptance and forgiveness and giving each other grace be pushed out instead of divisiveness and hating each other and saying that they're, you know, they're liberal or they're conservative or they're MAGA or they're pro Biden or whatever. It doesn't really matter because people are just people and people that are lost and people are hurt. They, you know, hurt people, hurt people. That's what happens. And mental health is the one major component right now that gets that really stems, I think, from diet, seed oils, all that kind of stuff, and is affecting people's mental health. Um, Like I said, we could talk about this forever, because I think that is the biggest thing that's affecting people's mental health right now is the diet. Yeah. But um, just pushing love and acceptance, that would be my request.
0: Yeah, man. And you know what? You're doing it today. This hour and change has sent out some incredibly positive, energetic pieces into the world. And I think for all the listeners, you know, this is one of those podcasts that I hope you share because this is information that really needs to be out in the world. Jake, you've lived a life where you have had the opportunity to see many different things between your travels, your experiential learning, your current learning, like myself included. You, know, you and I are learning on the same path now all of this stuff i think puts out energy into the world that's very different i carry myself very differently when i walk now i see the world i've always seen the world through a, like you're saying i'm not angry most of the time but you know i even see differences now just in things i never paid attention to you know when i walk into the hospital and i see a mother who is delivering a baby and she's on four or five drugs that used to irritate me now what a how crazy of a person is this that she's doing drugs while she's pregnant I, now I flip that narrative, like how sick mentally does someone have to be to take drugs while you're pregnant and the compassion I need to have for her? What happened in her life that made everything go sideways to that point? It's a completely different narrative, same patient, same experience, different narrative. And if we start looking at people like you're saying, just like that, man, are we onto something. Jake, I love it, man. I love what you've done. I love your life story. I love you. Appreciate all you've done, you know, this past month in, you know, in a connection with me, this podcast. So, hey, brother, appreciate everything.
1: I appreciate you. Thank you very much for having me on the podcast.
0: It's my pleasure, brother. Take care. Well, I hope you thoroughly enjoyed that as much as I did. You know, to dive deep into these conversations that, touch all of us at our souls is worthy of our time. Jake is such an admirable human that the conversation was so free flowing and so easy that I I find this to be so heartwarming to have had the time to spend with him in conversation around these topics. It is very clear that we have a lot of work to do in society to help All of those folks on the front lines, especially post COVID to obtain the knowledge and information that will allow them to mitigate the risk of exposure to these tough experiences in life related to first responder activity, and then how we can learn to deal with these experiences leave us in a better place to exist within the framework of our local environment, our homes, with our children, our wives, our spouses of any position, and effectively continue in the job. As we stated, a lot of guys in first responder world and a lot of women in the first responder world have to leave the job because of the stresses. That's not good for society because we need folks doing the job of the first responder, wherever that is, wherever that finds that person. And so we need to learn to do a better job as a society of helping those individuals on the front lines deal with the stresses in a way that's functional for them mentally and physically so they can continue on in the job that they chose as a passion and a love. And Jake is doing the work here, right? On a personal level and on a employment-based level. Personally, I've been on a deep dive and journey to figure out what is it like to maintain my sense of self throughout these experiences that I find myself struggling with at times. Jake's vulnerability is admirable. I absolutely love the fact that he is able to share because I think it's good for him and good for all of us to learn what each other has gone through and what that experience can help another see what they need to learn and deal with and move on through. Personally, I have found so many parallels in my lives to individuals that I've met along my path, and specifically at the Man Uncivilized Initiation, meeting 30 men each time who have their work cut out for them. But boy, are they on the charge and the movement and the decision and the brotherhood and the just sheer strength and willpower to not fall prey to these stressors, right? And that is a key of any human. How do we deal with that which we've struggled with in a positive and effective way and not allow it to turn into these vices of dysfunction that we see all over society, alcohol, drugs, sex, work addiction, you know, spousal dysfunction, being dysfunctional to your children because you're stressed when you come home from work. These are not okay, never will be, never have been. And the archetype of the Marlboro man needs to go away where it is the strong man only without that sensitive side, that 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 feminine essence that allows us to be soft and allows us to be the best versions of ourselves as men when we come home. And I think Jake, as well as all of the men that I've met along this path, exemplify the work ethic, the desire, the the ethos of I am not going to fall prey to that which hurts others. And that's a beautiful thing. And for that, I thank Jake for his time and his effort in this world and every other man out there, and woman for that matter, doing the work, specifically related to being present moment with whoever they're involved with in a way that is Relational, safe, guiding, and frankly, beautiful. So I'll leave you with that. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. I thoroughly did. I love this guy. He, he is somebody I will stay in touch with for the rest of my existence. So with that, I leave you. As always, hug those kids. Have a fabulous day. The information provided in this podcast is for educational and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for advice and or treatment provided by your physician or other healthcare professional and is not to be used to diagnose or treat a health issue. This podcast does not constitute the development of any sort of provider-patient relationship. Have a great day.